It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright. And today's guest is a bit of a filmmaker polymath. He's a producer, writer, director. Welcome to the show, Joe Russo. Thank you for having me. My absolute pleasure. Now, your movies, just to give a few, are Nightmare Cinema, Inheritance, Au Nightmare, Locksmith, Beer Run, and as you say in your Twitter bio, and more. Uh, plus you're part of the Postmortem podcast hosted with horror legend Mick Garris. Nice to have you on the show. I appreciate uh, being here. Good man. Now, we're going to do three films that impacted everything in your adult life. But before we do, I thought we might just follow on from, like, the reason I'm, I, I approached you was was as much as, you know, seeing what films you made, but also some of the Twitter discussions I'd noticed that you'd, you'd started or were involved with. And you mean, you mean, you mean, uh, through grenades on a gasoline, <laughs> <laughs> but they, but they tended to go somewhere constructive in the end. I mean, people might not want to hear it, but it tends to go somewhere in the, in the, you're not saying you're not being a dog, a dogmatist or anything. No. Which is kind of a lot of what you're pouring the, the fuel on is like, if there are dogmatists out there, stop doing it. Stop being a dogmatist. <laughs> Almost stop being a dogmatist. Yeah. Yeah. That, that actually is a really good way to look at the, the narrative I try to, to, you know, push push on the social media is, I think people are are a little too dogged and a little too this is black and this is white and I think there's a lot of shades of gray in things. No, I mean, and, and like I said to you before we start recording, I'm someone that came to screenwriting a little later in life, and the podcast has been a bit of a a bit of a film school for me. And I remember in the beginning, sort of 2009-10, when. I felt like I was looking for rules because that's what was being presented to me about how to write, which as a journalist, which is what I was, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. You know, there's a, what, what does a bit of copy look like? Cause you're writing right. about something. Whereas what I've learned is the creative process is about learning what works for you, which is, which can be a combination of lots of things or a combination of nothing you've ever heard of because you stumble on it. I actually went to, to journalism school and did a little little work as a, a, a journalist early, early in my career. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, there is, there's a real specific formula, especially to news writing, exactly. you know? Um, and, and I do, but I do think there's some things that carry over from journalism and screenwriting. Like I think being able to be smart and punchy with your, your, you know, action lines that, that I, I attribute all of that to my journalism experience, you know? Um, and but uh, but yeah no I think I think you're right is people want there to be rules for screenwriting because they want to be able to say I checked these things off mm. why is my movie not getting made yet you know what I mean yeah and and it's it's there's there's such a like there's so much gray in between oh I followed the rules and a great screenplay 
and that's where the, the discussion kind of gets lost. It really is. It's about you have to have your voice. You have to have your point of view. You have to have your a story that's exciting and characters that are compelling. Uh, and just because, you know, you formatted the script perfectly or you didn't use these types of words that executives do or don't like, that's not really what they're looking for, you know? Oh, you, you reminded me of like one of one of my first classes I went to. The 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 tutor that we had said he held up two screenplays, and and it was it was to prove the point you're making. He goes he goes which one of these two sold, and he and he and one of them was an absolute dog's dinner. Like it looked like someone had scrolled over it in, in, with a spider with ink all over its feet, <laughs> and the other one looked like it had just spewed nicely out of final draft, and every 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 i had been dotted, every t had been crossed, yeah. and obviously. The trick was to get us to all go, well, that one, it looks like a screenplay. And he goes, sure. the one with the best story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it probably was the one that looked like shit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I mean, I think, I think there's, there's been plenty of examples of this over the last few years. I mean, you know, I developed a script with a writer. It was a wonderful script. It's, it's, it's sad it never got made. But uh, while we were developing it, he had a script kind of, take off and go around town and it got signed by CAA and like, and it ended up being the number one script on the blacklist. Oh, wow. And it was a biopic told from the perspective of Michael Jackson's pet monkey bubbles. And like, that's when I was like, Oh, you can do anything Mm. as long as the storytelling is good. You know? Like that, that really opened my eyes. And then, you know, when like Beck and Woods sold their script and uh, for, for a quiet place and it had like a page with like, just like one giant word on it. And, you know, like, so, so it's like, there are no rules. It's just about communicating the story that you're telling effectively. Mm. And hopefully the story you're telling is compelling. But I think but it comes, I think I keep saying, I mean, I've started teaching myself. So I do one day a week and, one of the things about writing for me is not about the rules as such, but if you decide on something stylistically, then be consistent throughout, which is very much a journalistic thing. If you decide this is how you're going to do it, then make sure you keep doing it that way so it's it's not mm-hmm. hard for the reader to work it out. That's that's yeah, the key you, for you, me. You create the own rules of your screenplay. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, you can if you if you're going to use double dashes or ellipses or lots of white space or, you know, single word action lines, like you create those rules in the text. And as long as what you're giving them is clear and compelling, they'll go along with that journey. Yeah. I mean, thanks, thanks to um, Jeff Goldsmith on the Q and a, he, he, one of, one of the, sh- one of the shows he was, one of the shows he had early shows, I cotton onto him. He was discussing Walter Hill's screenwriting technique and I got hold of hard times which is like haiku poetry compared to the screenplays that you, you normally see. And I think in a way, emulating him became, I mean, obviously I, don't, I can't write like him, but trying to emulate him became a way of using the journalistic skills of the, the punchier, shorter, more smarter way of writing. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of, I would say that kind of describes our, my, my writing partner and I voice too. I don't necessarily, the, the way that Walter like bunches the text together kind of drives me nuts from like, but, 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 you know, that's his thing. Uh, but yeah, but that kind of short punchy, uh, writing, I, that's, we've kind of employed that in our, our writing. Like I said, I kind of brought my, that journalism mm. background into it and it's been really effective for us. You know, I mean, we've, we've gotten 
a couple more than a couple pictures made at this point. So like we're we're doing something right. No, true, uh, true, true. <laughs> now, um, now, it, interesting. Just to talk about the writing side of it, one of your more recent ones is a film called The Locksmith, starring um, right. uh, Ryan Phillip and Kate Bosworth and uh, Ving Rhymes. But on that, there's five credits. It says you're the writer, and it says that Blair Kruber is the original story, but it's also got John Glosser, Ben Cabellis, and Chris Lamont as listed as writers too. So how do we unpack, as, as, a, as a layperson looking at that IMDb listing, how do we unpack that? That is that is a complicated one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the assumption would be, oh, you know, five or six people sat around in a room and figured out what the story is. But no, that's... It's not quite how it happened. It was it was um, uh, Blair did the first pass on on the script. It was his kind of creation. Mm-hmm. John came on to rewrite uh, Blair's script. Mm. We came on. Chris and I came on to rewrite John's script. And then uh, when the movie went into production, they brought Ben on to do the final production rewriting. Uh, oh. So so it was, you know everyone had their time and their moment with this thing. Our, our kind of piece, our contribution was the draft that, that we wrote was the one that got Ryan Philippi attached to the project. It got Ving Rames attached mm. to the project and it helped them secure their um, minimum guarantee financing with the distributor. Oh, well done. Uh, so, so we, so we, you know, we played a pretty significant role in that, which is, I think why, you know, we, we got, you know, even though we were rewritten, we, we still got credit and we still, uh, uh, you know, we were also executive producers on that movie for kind of helping uh, pull those pieces together for them. So, you know, it's it's but after that point, it was kind of out of our hands. You know, the movie the movie went and became what it was going to become with with uh, the final collaboration between the director, Nick Harvard and, and Ben. Do you always write as a part? Are you are you someone that always writes together, or are you, are you do you, are you do you have your own individual projects as well? Uh, not not particularly. We've we've written mostly everything together. Um, we tend to do our blue sky, you know, pie in the sky. What is this movie going to be? Outlining kind mm. of conversations together, and then uh, we we kind of go off and we go to draft and we take stabs at the scenes and pass them back and forth to each okay. other. Okay. Um, and then once we have a, a full draft, you know, a big, hunky, meaty draft that we both touched every scene on, uh, then we go through it together and we kind of polish it up and, and you know, tighten and, and whatever else is going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's kind of the process. That's that's how the sausage is made. I, I recently, I spoke to Lucas Don, the uh, the Belgian filmmaker, about, about his film Close, and he, he while he he gets the director credit and the, the screenwriter Angelo gets the gets the writer credit, they actually do develop it together. So I was, I was saying to him, you know, how does that work? And he said, what they do is they write each scene each, but separately. So oh, interesting. So they 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 do it as a as a kind of like, what do I come up with? What do you come up with? And then almost like, and then they try to marry them together. And essentially, uh, what he was saying is the the, ma- the magic is. He tends to write scenes with no dialogue, and his screenwriter tends to write them with dialogue. So there seems to always be enough for them to bring it together. Oh, that's cool. That's that's fun. Yeah. No, I I I think I think because I'm uh, a director too. Yeah. And I'm like really focused on like the blocking and the way scenes lay out. I usually tend to take the the first stabs at them, and then Chris kind of 
writes on top of them and like adds them and expands them and, and throws in some crazy ideas. And then we kind of collectively pare it down and into like something in the middle, you know? Okay. Um, well, I've, so, I've, de- I've developed three scripts with a director called Ashley Horner in the UK. I mean, we were touch wood. One of them's due to be shooting in November this year, but having done three, having th- done three together, our process is, is, is very much, we talk together but I definitely do the right. I'm definitely the one that opens up fade in and write stuff. Right. And then he's the one that then gives me almost like, it's almost like the note giver in a way. Yeah. 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 Um, and that's yeah. kind of how we do that. And it is, but he never opens up fade in ever. It's ne- that's always the notes are, cause in a way what he wants to see is what, I th- is what I understand it. He wants to see what I'll come up with, with what he's told me rather than him try and answer it himself. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I mean, I think every writing team has a different process and they and they all have something that works for them. And and this is something that's been working for us for, you know, a few years now. So we kind of tend to, to stick to what's working. Um, well, go back to my point from but, before. But, yeah, it's all about finding the process that works <laughs> for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, no, it's, it's, um, we've been collaborating forever. I mean, he's, he's like, uh, He's, you know, he's my work spouse. You know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> I do know what you mean. I do know what you mean. <laughs> so we, we, we get along really well. And we also, we, we also bicker like a married couple, you know? So it's, it's, it's just part of the process. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. But it's, it's as long as you, as long as you, as long as you're happy when you see the phone number and you're happy when you see the email arrive in the inbox, it's working well. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we're, we're, you know, we're happy with, the scripts that we deliver ultimately, mm. you know, when they go on and uh, leave our hands and, and go into the hands of other producers and directors, you know, it, it is what it is. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. All bets are often. All you can do is try to make the script the best you can while you have the chance to do it, you know? Indeed. Indeed. And on that, on that conclusion, I'm going to move us into three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. Um, All right. I've explained the rules to you before we start recording, but for the listener that's maybe come to this for the first time, you've given me three films, yes. um, and these we're going to. I'll prompt you with each one in the order you gave them me. We will talk for the time of five minutes on each one, and when um, I don't know why I don't know how panic can do this. I can edit. I can edit all the silence myself. Um, <laughs> when we hear this sound. It's not DEFCON 1. It's just time to move on to the next uh, the next uh, film. Does that sound okay to you? That sounds awesome. Brilliant. Okay, then. Without further ado, and I don't have to say the year, really, because they're all the same year of release, which is uh, which is canon. There's, there's a reason for that, and we'll talk about it. Good man. <laughs> okay, so 2003's Kill Bill Volume 1. Tell me how, where does this impact on you, and how? Well, so so to give some context, mm-hmm. I grew up in Connecticut, uh, which is about as far away from Hollywood as you can, almost as far away as you, you can get in America yeah. uh, from Los Angeles. And the idea of making movies was, was so foreign to me. Uh, but that fall, I was a freshman in college, and I started taking some film studies classes because I had always loved film growing up. Okay. And uh, my my high school buddy who kind of wanted to be Spielberg, uh, Andrew Pappas, he took me to a weekend filmmaking seminar 
and that was kind of when the first time when I went like, oh, this is like a job. This is something you could do. This is something I could do. Uh, and that kind of, you know, that epiphany, yeah. like that love of film becoming something that could be art that I could maybe make uh, became real for the first time. And it happened to coincide with just a, a banger of a movie year in 2003 and in 2004. Like I'm picking three of those titles was, was really hard. Mm. Uh, but these were three that stand out for, for distinctive reasons. Okay. And, you know, when we are in the dredges of the, the creative process, you know, we're getting notes or directors are, are rewriting our material and changing it in ways we don't love. You know, I, I tend to go back to movies from this moment in my life. Uh, specifically because um, they, they kind of fill me back up. They remind me of what inspired me in the first place. And uh, probably no more so than, than Kill Bill volume one. I, I, I am one of the people who holds that as my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. Okay. Um, you know, I think I know everyone always says Pulp Fiction or whatever, but like, I thought that while the writing is phenomenal in his first three movies, this is the first time where it really felt like his directing took center stage, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. This is the first time where, where his, his visual style was unleashed in a way that um, profoundly impacted me. You know, the fact that it went to, you know, live action to animation, to black and white, you know, Mm. the music, uh, the the locales, the action, the violence, the gore, the humor, it kind of all hit me in a way that was just like the perfect stew of of my interests. You know, um, it just, it felt like a full-on cinema experience. You know? I totally agree with you. Uh, so it, 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 it was just one of those things where it was, it was a lightning bolt moment. You know, it, it when I first saw the trailer, it inspired me to go back and rewatch his filmography. Uh, you know, my video store at the time started doing a, uh, you can rent three movies out at, at a time type of thing. So mm. I, you know, saw the trailer for that and like immediately went to the store, picked up, you know, Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown and Pulp Fiction and, and rewatched them. And I was so primed and ready for it. And, uh, and then, you know, my college that I was at, ended up hosting a couple screenings of it throughout the year. So I probably saw it, you know, four or five times, you know, from six months after re- release, especially like in the run up to the, the sequel that got released the following spring. Um, so did was, you, are you, se- and are you seeing this film in the wake of that filmmaking seminar you went to as well? Yes. Uh-huh. So this is after the yeah. seminar. You're yes. Okay. Yeah. So it, it really kind of opened my eyes to the, like, wow, like, look at the risks and the boldness and the creative decision-making that went into this, like, yeah. kind of understanding rudimentarily uh, what what maybe went into it, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was, it was like, it was just, they both happened in, like, the same month. You know, I think the movie came out in October, and I think that, that the seminar was, like, late September, early October, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it was, just, it was just this perfect intersection of, like, my understanding of filmmaking opening up in this big way and Quentin Tarantino just pouring this expression of cinema into me. Uh, like I was, I was a, a well that was ready to be filled, you know? 
So, so these, so in, 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 before that, you're doing these film studies modules as part of your yes. studies, and they're like they're teasing out your fandom of film, and then suddenly you're like, hold on a minute, I can do this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, it was pretty cool. Um, so it was it was just an exciting moment. Uh, hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me what inspires your music. And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. You know, I, I, I ended up liking part two, you know, a lot as well. I think like when you watch them together, it's just, a, it's a, it's a masterpiece, you know? And um, I mean, look, his filmography is so exciting, but, but I don't think I will ever be as, as moved by one of his pieces as I was those just because it was this perfect intersection of, of fandom and, you know, appreciation for the craft. Okay. Well, look, tonally, we're going to shift to a, a completely different type of film. Same year, 2003, but this is Tim Burton's Big Fish. You want to talk to us about how, how that impacts on you in 2003? Yeah, so so what happened that fall was, you know, my my buddies, you know, they, they all dispersed for, for college, uh, you know, in, in upstate New York and, and, and New Hampshire, and I was, I stayed home, I was stuck in Connecticut, and um, when they came home for the winter break, uh, you know, like after Thanksgiving mm. and, and, you know, into Christmas, um, it was just an incredible awards season of movies that came out, you know, um, it was, it was, it was, I was really like tossed up to choose either big fish or, uh, return of the King. Cause the, you know, I saw, saw with this, the same group of friends, um, who were just, we were all falling in love with cinema at this point. And, but the thing about Big Fish was it was limited release right before Christmas, right? It, it hadn't expanded yet wide. Um, and they were all home. The only theater that was showing it was 40 minutes away from our small town. Uh, okay. So we all packed in a car and we drove 40 minutes to go see this, this movie. And it ended up being such a wonderfully beautiful, imaginative movie. Um, you know, I obviously Batman and Batman Returns and Beetlejuice and Pee Wee and Edward Scissorhands and Ed Wood. I mean, there's there's so many wonderful movies that that I had seen of of Tim's leading up to this uh, that are huge parts of my life. But this felt like such a culmination of everything he'd been working towards. It it, it just it bred his you know his visual eye with. Uh, you know, this, his beautiful, weird characters, uh, storytelling was just so remarkable. And, you know, and it just like my dad had, um, taken a job across country at that point. Um, and my family and I were still in Connecticut and we hadn't moved to Arizona yet. Okay. Um, so, so we were like long distance with him. And I think like the combination of like seeing it with these friends who had gone away and like, going on this road trip to see this little movie. And then 
having it move me in a way where it was like, I just missed my dad so much, you know, oh, and, wow. <laughs> and yeah. having it be this like father, son, real father, son, emotional journey. Yeah. It just, it just, uh, it just hit me really hard. And I remember when we got home feeling like that was like one of the best cinematic experiences I'd ever had. Isn't it, isn't it amazing how a film that's made for mass consumption can be reduced to being like, this feels like it's made for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, it really did. It, 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 it felt so personal. Um, and, and you know, it was just like the, it only reinforced what was happening to me in that moment that, you know, when I, I did transfer out to Arizona state the next year, I was going to try to find a way to pursue film. Like, yeah. like all three of these movies kind of pushed me in that direction. I mean, what was it? I mean, there's, there's that relationship with your father, but in terms of, as a, as a film viewer, what did it, what, what did it open up in you that, that you haven't he, he, You know what's funny is, um, I, I, when my dad came home that winter break, cause he came back to Connecticut, I was like, you have to go see this movie. And so I, I took him on that same journey. We went to this little theater yeah, yeah, yeah. 40 minutes away and I took him to see the movie and I don't know. He didn't have the same experience with it. And I remember the movie ending and the lights coming up and me turning to him, like waiting for him to have the same kind of profound emotional response. And he just didn't, uh, <laughs> uh, which was, which is an interesting thing, um, which speaks to, I think it can mean different things to you. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if like, he felt like, you know, what is, what is, Joe trying to say about our relationship with this, you know, he also had a, a, a dad who died when he was pretty young. So like, like young in his adult life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know if maybe like it just hit him in a different way because of that, you know? Um, but I, I remember feeling so elated after the first time I saw it and, and almost so deflated <laughs> when I took him to see it, which was, which was an interesting kind of roller coaster of emotions. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting aspect to it that you'd had this connection with it and was like, you must see this, and then it doesn't hit the same way because obviously you're both in different you're both at different emotional states in your life when you sit and watch it. Absolutely, absolutely. Right then, for your uh, for your final choice, we've got we've got again. I mean, as far as three films goes, tonally, I don't think you could have complete such such contrasting uh, films. Um, certainly, to think that they're all American films as well. It's like the fact that you know, if you say what's American film culture, and you go, okay, here's three films, you wouldn't know. Oh, that's what it must be like. Um, so, I'm indeed, sure. I mean, I'm hinting at and talking around Sofia Coppola's uh, Lost in Translation. Yeah, Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation. Um, it's probably one of the most interesting movies in, uh, that I consider amongst my favorite movies. Cause it's such an outlier. I don't tend to get super excited about movies that are more methodically paced and, and lighter on narrative. Um, but again, I think because my, my soul was just so open to cinema in this exact moment in time. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think Kill Bill had kind of, weirdly primed the pump for me to be interested in Japanese culture. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That <laughs> makes sense. Little, uh, this little 
you know, movie that this intimate movie that took place in Japan to, to kind of arrive in my life in that moment uh, was really powerful. Um, you know, I think also to Ghostbusters is my favorite movie of all time. So to see Bill Murray, Peter Venkman, you know, uh, opened up so emotionally raw and exposed in, in a, a drama like this, uh, you know, I think it, it just hit in a really hard way, hmm. you know, um, I'm always so impressed when I rewatch lost in translation with the raw emotional performances, but also just the mood of it, hmm. the sense of sense of place, uh, the sense of, of, of being the other in, in a, in a culture, you know, and, and two people who are, we're feel feeling alone and singled out kind of finding each other and, and, you know, despite their age differences connecting on, on such a deep level. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely like, I think, you know, when I, when I watch that movie, it, it just, I find it so transportive. It's like, it's like going on a trip to Japan, a place I've never been, mm. but I feel like I've been because I've, I've watched this movie so many times. Yeah. Cause it, cause it, cause it plays with the tropes of a fish out of water because it's two people experience it together for different reasons. Yeah. It becomes yeah. about them, not the fish out of water as such. That's what makes, I think that's what makes it such a clever movie. Right. And there's so many small little details and things like, you know, I think about, so I'm I'm a, I'm a bigger guy too, you know. I think about Bill Murray having struggling with the the shower being too short for him, and you know, like <laughs> things like that. You know, I you know I hate traveling because of stuff like that. Uh, you know, it's it's it's, but yeah, and and the idea that like it's so hard to to communicate with your travel and and the language barrier and like fighting through that. I there's you know, and then finding someone who is you know, in that same situation and, uh, you know, exposing yourselves so intimately and rawly, uh, you know, there's, there's a, there's one of the best scenes in the movie is when they're just like lying on bed in bed, talking about, you know, kind of where they are in their lives and, you know, how afraid Scarlet is about kind of this, the fact that she doesn't have a path forward. You know, um, and I think me at that moment in time, you know, I was just, I was, I was, I was at a school in Connecticut. My family was about to be displaced to another part of the country. I was about to transfer. I didn't, you know, the thing I thought I was going to do with my life, which was, you know, be a history major, didn't seem like something I was going to do anymore. Like, you know, I was, I was thinking about chasing film, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely could relate, I think, to some of that, like, existential angst that she was going through um and you know hearing bill murray basically say you're gonna be okay made me feel okay <laughs> you know <laughs> absolutely and but but in in typical sort of because we're used to what films do and films are always meant you know the difference between film and real life is that a screenplay is meant to make sense whereas life rarely does make sense um, sure. but in this one you have the expectation that we're used to in movies that the guy's going to get the girl, the girl's going to get the guy. And actually yeah. part of you, part of you as a viewer is we don't want that. We just want them to find a little bit of happiness, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of the self almost. Yeah. Because they're exactly. so, because they are so lost, you know, literally. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and I, I, I do love that about the movie. I think, I think that it, it, 
you know, they shouldn't be together. They're not right for each other to be together in that mm. way. You know, um, I feel like if they got back to the States and they tried, it probably wouldn't work out in the long term. But mm. in that exact moment, they're, they're who they needed to be with to move themselves forward in their lives. And, mm. and I think that's like a really cool thing. And, you know, I reference the movie all the time and, and I'm starting to realize, you know, when I, when I directed my first movie, the au pair, my, uh, my actress is about, you know, 10 years younger than me. She, I was like, Oh, you know, lost in translation. And she was like, Oh, that old movie. And I was like, <laughs> Oh my God. And it, 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 you know, these movies are getting old. They're all turning 20 this year, but you know, um, it, they reflect the moment I decided I wanted to be a filmmaker. And that's why I think they still still do continue to impact me in my adult life. I mean, weirdly, I mean, it might sound like a crass comparison, but it was a debut film as well. Um, yeah, this was this was Sophia's first movie, wasn't it? Lost in Yeah, it was. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So ten year, ten years, ten ten or so years earlier, you had Richard Linklater's Slacker, which which was about a whole movement of people. I mean, essentially, the Scarlett Johansson character is essentially every is all the characters in Slacker almost. People who, right. who who don't know what their place is in the world anymore, so don't know what, so are directionless. I mean, obviously, Slacker was a was a phenomena, and and he captured it in the movie. But ultimately, I think that's I think there's there's maybe some parallels between the two films. It was not it was not her debut movie, but okay. it did feel like her debut. It was the okay. one that I think that broke through for the. Sorry, first yeah, time. maybe, maybe, yeah, okay, let's. Yeah, if, no, I I I I had I just wanted to make sure we corrected ourselves. No, so no, cool, no, 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 by all means, on Twitter for being wrong. Uh, <laughs> They wouldn't. They wouldn't do that, Joe. That's not how it works. Social media people are usually so polite. Yeah, that, that never happens. No one ever yells at people <laughs> for saying the wrong thing. Uh. <laughs> now, now, what this? I mean, something we were talking about before we start recording, which I think the the three selections you've made play into certainly with say your interest in genre, is that having a well rounded sort of film education and a film film love and appreciation yeah. is as important to being a horror filmmaker as it is knowing you know, how many kills were in Friday the 13th, seven. In fact, probably more important than knowing how many kills were in Friday the 13th, part seven. Well, and you you could argue that the, the reason some of the latter Friday the 13th movies don't work is because they don't have those great human drama character relationships to latch into. Mm. Uh, and they are, they are more focused on, you know, kills. Like the the jokes with some of those kind of deep cut 80 slashers is, you know, you, you root for the killer over the characters. Yeah. 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 I don't think that that should be the case. I think that's some, something that, that grew out of kind of a, a cynicism. You know, I think the best horror movies are, are good dramas first. Yeah. I mean, and, I think, I think Jason Blum says, doesn't he, that if I'd like to be able to take the horror out of our films and it'd still be a Sundance movie, you know? Yeah, in, in yeah, terms of exactly. The, that's, that's kind of his, that was his philosophy in the early Blumhouse movies. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if it's, Still the case so much, but 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 uh, but it makes but as, uh, as, as you can apply it and it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it- yeah, no, I, I think so. I think so. I mean, like if you look at even something like Megan, which is obviously a silly movie about you know a, a robot doll, but like at the heart of it is you know a woman who is job obsessed being having her her you know having to adopt her sister's kid after her they die tragically and like them trying to find a way to connect, you know. Mm. Um, so I, 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 you know, he is still doing that. And I, th- and I do think that that is, you, you look at the best horror movies and you can usually find those things. And 
I think that you get exposed to more dramatic premises like that the more varied cinema you watch, mm. you know? Like, I, I think you could definitely take something like Lost in Translation, which is, you know, you're in another country. That that can be scary, you yeah. know? You're completely alone and there's no one to talk to. That can be scary. Uh, you meet a stranger uh, and you connect intimately that could quickly become scary. You know what I mean? Like, like that you can take ideas from a, a drama from a completely other genre, take those interesting kind of character relationships and turn them on their head in fascinating ways. And I don't think you get there if you aren't exposing yourself to stuff like that. Absolutely. So apparently I need to write a horror movie inspired by loss of translation is, is kind of what I'm gathering from this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd love to, I'd, the combination of trying to do that and then getting my buddy Valentine's Kevin Shields to write a horror movie score as well. Yeah. That would be, <laughs> that would be a great combo. <laughs> I mean, in a way that, cause, cause with big fish, you've got, you've got a traditional narrative kill bill. You've got a, you know, a hardcore easy yeah. to follow revenge narrative that sort of, yeah, implo- of you know explodes in, into all kinds of shards, but you know, you know but what you follow at the heart of all of those movies are interesting relationships. Obviously big fish is a father son story. Yeah. It's, a, it's a story about, a, a, you know, grief mm. about dealing with the, the loss of a parent, which like all, all of those things could easily be extrapolated into the horror genre. And, and, and you, you touched on it, you know, revenge obviously with kill bill, but, you know, it's also like being betrayed by a loved one. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, losing a child or thinking you lost a child. Mm. Like there's, there's like really horrific ideas that you can pull from it. Um, that, that aren't just, you know, what's a, a creepy thing in the dark corner, you know, what's a cool way to stab somebody in the head, you know, uh, both of those things are important in a horror movie, but like, I would wait one over the other, you know, when, when, we're um, brainstorming. We're usually like, let's figure out what the drama human element is. The scares will come once we kind of figure out what that is and, and you know, trusting yeah. that they will. Well, no, I mean, one, one of my favorite horror films is, is, is uh, kill this Ben Wheatley's film. And if you, sure. if you ever yeah. see, if you ever see that film, like, you know, for half the movie, it's really just following two arguably PTSD suffering soldiers who've just become yeah. these killers for hire, yep. which is a ho- yep. horrible idea. But then the idea they descend into a horrible world as a result of that byproduct of war becomes its whole of the film. Then you're, and you, the fact you're not ready for it. I mean, for me, when I saw it, it was like, okay, so horror can be just, can be just, just a slight, slight turn left on real life. And yet it can become massively horrific. We've covered your films. We've talked a little about the process. Um, Anything you want to share with us that you've got coming up that you're excited about before we before we sign off? Uh, obviously, you know, continue to produce uh, Postmortem with Mick Garris, which is a podcast that you can find me on uh, every other week when we do the Ask Mick Anything episodes. Um, but you know, we have we always have kind of great guests for that. You know, we've we've just had uh, Bruce Campbell on. We just had Beck and Woods on. We're just going to have Radio Silence on. Um, so. If you're in a horror, it's a it's a great one to check out and and kind of get in the heads of of you know these legends uh, of the genre, get into their creative process. Brilliant. Well, look, I'll put I'll put links in the show notes so people can find that easy enough. And it just awesome. gives me to say best of luck with what you've got in post. And uh, thank you very much for giving your time on the Britflix podcast. 
Thank you for having me. another season of the Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find the Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com.